0: Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring a neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information, promote options for mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Peyton. Today, Jay Gunkelman will talk about epilepsy. This will be a great YouTube show, guys. But before we get to to uh, Jay, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking tour talk interest interested brain hacker and sadia m outrageous baking is dedicated to gluten free bakery that has been around 15 years and tour talk wants more people to discover text to speech tts because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress i have downloaded i've tried it it is pretty cool you can take a picture of a page of a book and it'll talk to you guys so i'm i'm Totally into it. Sadia M. had some questions, guys, and we're going to answer it on our special Patreon chat uh, portion. So, Sadia, stay stay tuned. Okay, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, Jay Gunkelman, we missed you last week. Uh, I'm sure you had a good reason. What were you up to? Uh,
1: I have my days. Um <laughs> uh, it, uh I, I, I quite reliably uh end up having bad days that i can't uh, basically function so but you know i'm supposed to be dead already so having a bad day is still <laughs> still on the right side of the grass you know so okay um, I-, I think skip has a um a a, a, a valid announcement and uh a thought for uh, skip what you got gone before us here
2: sure we can we can lead with that thanks jay in in memoriam um rip to aaron beck passed away last week in philadelphia at age 100 we should all be so lucky right i think he was publishing uh, he, he did some memoir publishing up until age 98 like i guess that gives us hope huh um to get some get some documents out aaron beck was the C and the CBT. So he, he led the way with the idea that cognitions, particularly in regard to depression, play a large part in our mood. And, and that had been a reversal of thinking at that time. And 60s, 70s really kind of powered forward uh, with this notion. And his, his work showed that if you can address maladaptive thoughts is what he called them, which were prominent and prevalent in folks that were depressed, that you could get somewhere. And, and so that was a, a pretty powerful tool, if you will, for the field of mental health and psychology, psych, psychiatry too. Um, and it also, and this is where some folks, maybe um, over the years, certainly Freudian folks, psychoanalytic folks, maybe gave it a little pushback, is it was, it was quantifiable right? And so you could, you could measure, you know, how are you feeling, you know, as far as depression and all these things and moved away from tell me about your mother stuff. And the other piece that maybe was double-edged sword, I think is that insurance liked it too. Cause then we could say, Hey, CBT in 10 sessions works So we'll cover it. And again, these things that moved uh, CBT and, and, and that brand of therapy, if you will, forward, had some baggage with it. But nonetheless, Aaron Beck was a pioneer for sure. And he's gone and he left a, a legacy that still thrives. CBT is probably one of the go-to therapies. And I think one of the ones that's often used when they're doing double, double blind studies. Aaron Beck, RIP. Thanks, Skip.
3: Yeah, he was the a, a primary uh, source on CBT because he, you know, helped develop it. But um, it it was always a, a good self help uh, manual that we would hand out. Um, you know, when I was doing therapy, people could kind of follow along in a in a workbook. And um, it was feeling good, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, feeling good. <laughs> remember, remember that the little yellow? I do
2: now I do. Yeah.
3: It was was kind of funny in a way that I was kind of joked about a little bit. Um, It was a, it was a little uh, paperback book, but I'm holding my fingers up. It was about two or three inches thick. And so I always thought to myself, you know, they they should have made it a little bit wider. And I think they eventually did because if you're depressed and you see a three inch paperback book, you know, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but, but the point being is it um, kind of overrode the uh, like, like uh, Skip said, the, Freudian therapies that could take forever. You go, you know, to year of analysis, whereas CBT, a little bit shorter shorter term. But it gave you a sense of uh, control, like here's some tools, here's some take-home, here's some worksheets, here's a, a paperback uh, book or manual or workbook, and you can, you know, work through your own issues and have success. So a g- good tool without doing a lot of the um, uh, more in-depth psychoanalysis yeah lost lost a good figure in the field
0: last week uh i thought you were having a pretty pretty good week because uh i thought you were working on uh, epilepsy what was going on <laughs>
1: well <clears throat> i i uh end up having uh, talks on epilepsy uh very commonly and i had yeah. a i had a talk uh uh, on a- epilepsy which the material sitting in front of us is is basically related to that but uh, l- let's uh, l- let's look um a-, a little bit uh at it because you know you think oh well epilepsy I-, I don't need to pay much attention to this because it's a um you know it it's it's not add um it's not autism uh, it's not You know, and if you don't have epilepsy, why should I pay attention to this talk? Well, this paper, uh, Isolated Epileptiform Discharges in Children, Its Prevalence and Relevance, is is a 2020 paper, uh, Springer Science. It's a a uh, a well-viewed journal, European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Journal. And basically what they're looking at is the incidence of epileptiform EEG activity in non-epileptic patients in psychiatry. And uh, you'd think, well, you know, the, there's a 5% incidence in the background population. Of course, you're going to see one here and there. But uh, uh, here in ADD-ADHD, there's a, this is a meta-analysis, and there's a whole series of uh, well-respected papers with percentages ranging uh, up in the 30%, um, the mid-teens to 30%. So the estimate is somewhere above 25% for the for the ADD ADHD population. 25%, one out of four of the patients that you run into that have ADD ADHD are going to have unexpected epileptiform discharges. Now they're not having seizures. The discharges are in areas that disturb attention and uh, 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 comprehension and memory, but not uh, to create a seizure. So over 25%, and there's one paper I was actually involved in that had a a very small percentage, uh, but it only had two minutes of EEG. And uh, they they realized that even a known epileptic uh, that's diagnosed with epilepsy if you do a 20-minute study, you just have a little over 50% chance of seeing a discharge. You have to run a longer study, a 24-hour study, or a sleep-deprived study to bring them out uh, to, to assure them. But it's the outlier study, and again, it's dismissible because of the very, very short non-clinical length for the EEG. Anxiety disorders, yeah, you know, it's a little above the average of 5% or so. Uh, but it's not anywhere near the uh, 25 plus percent for ADD. And for autism, uh, uh, percentages ranged. Uh, w- we generally have said 40% of the autism population have classical epileptiform discharges, and another 20% have paroxysms that are, pro- you know, there's no spike, but they're probably the, the same kind of a process. And uh, here the percentages range. Uh, upwards to sixty percent, easily, uh, with the outlier being high at eighty-five percent of the autism population, and uh, that that actually was a large study, eight hundred and seventy people. Um, mood disorders, eh? Back to the background population um, for a couple of studies. Uh, there's one um, uh, 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 that that had a higher percent, <clears throat> but mood disorders generally are not the uh, thing that you end up suspecting. Uh, uh, psychosis, on the other hand, about a third of the psychotic uh, uh, folks that are out there have epileptiform discharges in the EEG. The importance of seeing that is that the epileptiform discharges in psychosis will be worsened with an antipsychotic. If you treat them with a traditional antipsychotic, they get worse. Uh, if you use an anticonvulsant, uh, they get better. So um, actually looking at the EG when somebody has a psychotic presentation is quite useful. Uh, the, the, the treatment basically splits into two branches. One where you use antipsychotics uh, effectively with, with some. If you don't have a paroxysm, you're highly likely to have that as an effective medication class. But if you have paroxysms and, and epileptiform discharges in a psychotic patient, you're highly likely to end up with worsening or major side effects. So um, <clears throat> um, what I would suggest is that this paper uh, points to the, the broad aspect of what the epileptic discharges actually represent. They're not just people that have convulsions uh, or, or temporal lobe rage events or, or that sort of thing. Um, they're, they're actually uh, the ADD kids, um, the, the autistic kids, um, the mood disorders, uh, and, and uh, young people and adults, <clears throat> pardon me, that have uh, psychotic changes. If you see the discharges and you treat them effectively, uh, you would expect success. And here is an interesting paper. Um, uh, we, <clears throat> this is a retrospective paper. So we look back at the outcomes that were done clinically. And these were non-epileptic psychiatric patients with a, a general psychiatric practice in Houston, uh, Dr. Tarno. And uh, the patients had epileptiform discharges in their EEG. And we recommended the, uh, an empirical trial on an anticonvulsant. Now in neurology, unless you're having convulsions, an anticonvulsant won't be given. But in psychiatry, they use anticonvulsants as a stabilizing agent, and the psychiatrist operating within their standard of practice provided the anticonvulsants to the patients. Well, what happened? This is 76 patients, and we had an 85 percent clinical success rate. Meaning, it's not like they didn't that they reduced their seizures; they weren't having seizures. Uh, the 85 percent success is their psychiatric presentation getting better uh, a couple of them had a fever or a rash and had to quit taking the medication those are listed under the uh, more severe outcome but uh, basically an eighty five percent success what what kind of study shows you an eighty five percent success rate you know that that that's almost crazy well what kind of study shows that kind of a success rate well here's a meta-analysis of intractable epileptics. This is uh, uh, Gabriel Tan's uh, work, along with uh, uh, Corey Hammond, Uta Strail from Germany. Uh, the, uh, the, this, this is an international group um, that uh, uh, came together to write the uh, paper about uh, the outcomes using uh, n- neurofeedback to treat intractable epileptics. These are epileptics that didn't respond to traditional therapy with medications, and uh, to a certain extent also with diet, the, the ketogenic diet. But if you're an intractable epileptic, um, you think, well, that's no, that's the rare epileptic. Most are treated effectively. No, not actually. A third of the epileptics are effectively treated with medication, they're well controlled. Another third have some benefit, but they're not fully controlled. And then there's the one third that don't have any change in their epileptic uh, presentation with medications. They're the intractable epilepsy group. And that's usually what uh, ends up in a neurofeedback practice. If if the person ef- worked effectively with uh, the neurologist and uh, the medication worked, you probably would never see them in a neurofeedback practice. So uh, the, this paper basically looks at the efficacy, and they found a 74% uh, efficacy in intractable epileptic patients. 64 out of 87 uh, people in the meta-analysis uh, ended up with success. Now, you've got to, you know, well, how do you, how do you judge whether that's really better than some other uh, treatment? Well, uh, the other treatment for intractable epilepsy is brain surgery, and if, if they find a spot in your temporal lobe, uh, they will now take out a very small spot, but they used to take off the first third or half of the temporal lobe, uh, temporal lobectomy, uh, trying to cut out the abnormal piece, and they had some success. Uh, at three-year follow-up, which, you know, you've got to give somebody time to heal after you chop off a temporal lobe, um, you, you've, you've got to give them some time. So at three-year follow-up, uh, they had a 50% success rate. Now, it doesn't really sound that great to line up for somebody to chop a piece out of your brain for a 50% success, but if you're an intractable epileptic and they give you a half a chance, you will take it. Uh, it, 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 it's a very debilitating, uh, circumstance. So, uh, um, uh, the, the thing is now that they're taking out a small lump instead of the first third or half of the temporal lobe, their success rate went down. Uh, it's about a 30% success rate now. And, you know, you're still going to take that. And if the surgery is a lot less damaging, um, you know, missing a part of your brain isn't always a good thing. Um. You know, I had brain surgery myself. If you have to have it, I recommend it highly. But um, uh, I, I wouldn't go there just for the the you know the giggles. That's for sure. Um, so uh, you know, neurofeedback for intractable epilepsy beats the standard of care of uh, doing brain surgery. But you have to think. You know, epilepsy used to be thought of as a focus. Where where's the focus? Where where's the spot that's starting this epileptiform thing, but it's really a network property. It's, it's not just a focus and you can't cut out the network. So the brain surgery, uh, just inherently, if you, if you know what epilepsy is, brain surgery doesn't have as big a chance as you might think, because you can't cut out the entire network and it just takes a piece of it to end up being pathological. So, um, we basically have these. I'd like to actually show you some interesting EEGs. These are monozygotic twins. And this twin has seizures. We're going to just pop open the raw EEG on this seizure patient. And what we, well, first of all, if you've never seen a spike and wave before, you see plenty of them in front of you. We're not trying to teach you how to diagnose epilepsy, but if you can't see this big discharge in the EEG, um, you should go see your eye doctor. I mean, this is not one that's difficult to spot. And as you go through the EEG, this young girl has epilepsy and these spikes and spike and wave discharges are common all the way through her EEG. No surprise, she's diagnosed as an epileptic. I mean, she has epilepsy, no question. The, the spikes are uh, blatant. Uh, they involve the central uh, motor strip area uh, and also sensory integration area and some temporal areas. But um, the DEG the, the is just dramatically abnormal. Uh, let's take a look at her sister, who's diagnosed not with epilepsy, but with a learning disability doesn't have seizures, and as such, she is diagnosed because she has difficulty with sensory processing. She's diagnosed with learning disabilities. Recognize the discharges? You know, she's not having seizures, but these are monozygotic twins. They have the same genetics and as such, the same phenotype. And the EG phenotype of epileptiform discharges sits in front of us both of them have the same underlying pathology. One was symptomatic more for motor seizures. It's not like there aren't spikes in the motor area, but they're not uh, they're not uh, sufficient to trigger seizures. Uh, these are mostly in sensory integration areas parietally. And as such, they cause sensory integration problems. So she has a learning disability. But, you know, the DSM doesn't predict therapy. It just gives you the administrative diagnosis, and in this case, the diagnosis misses the fact entirely about what would fix this. You know, these need anticonvulsants. They don't need to be treated like they simply have a learning disability. Now, this is going to create a learning problem, but the funda- foundational problem here is the epilepsy, not, not the fact that they're, uh, they're having difficulty with the learning we need to get this fixed. Uh, When you get this fixed, this tissue will work properly for sensory integration. And the learning disability will wane as we get the brain functioning properly. And, you know, uh, that these were uh, dramatic uh, uh, EEGs. There's no question that these were uh, dramatic, Um, but they're not unusual.
2: Let's look at can I, can I ask you a question real quick? Sure, sure. So with the difference between the twins, um, you know, one with seizures and then the other with the learning disorder, you mentioned to think of epilepsy as a kind of a network issue and it all it takes is a piece of the network to be messed up, not your words, um, for you know, seizures to result. Could you think of the person that had the learning disorder as maybe their network isn't as messed up or, or something, or is it a location issue more so? uh,
1: The network that she has is not as active in the motor area. Now there's some there, but it's not sufficient to cause her to have convulsions. And, um, but they both have the same foundational problem. And the thing is, every time you fire that discharge, You burn in the circuit. You fire together, you wire together. That's a a classic statement in neurology. Uh, But there's also the statement, if you don't use it, you lose it. So if you can quiet down the focus and the network, at some point, the network starts to disassemble. A spoke over here and a hub over there, kind of a tinker toy model of what a network looks like, will be shed. And eventually, if you limit the network enough, you'll get rid of the convulsion and uh, clinical presentation. We're looking at just such a case here. Uh, This is the baseline EEG, October, 42 training sessions later in May. And we'll look at the EEG uh, from the beginning here. This is an eight-year-old girl who can't tie her shoes, and she can't speak. I wonder why. Well, she's got these gigantic discharges. You see the size of these? Yeah. You know, um, the size of the cell here, the blue cell is about the size of the cursor and that's 500 microvolts. And we have discharges here that are 500 microvolts in size. And, you know, uh, uh, that totally swamps the ability to do something uh, functional. Uh, you know, the, the little perceptual uh, packet is maybe five to 10 microvolts and it gets hit by a 500 microvolt uh, spike like this, the little ship is lost. There's no way you, you can, you know, process cognitively uh, when you're getting hit with these gigantic tsunamis um, uh, of electrical impulse. So this little girl, again, can't speak, can't tie her shoes, Uh, basically not really competent at self-help, and uh, and, at eight years old. Now, she was diagnosed as Drevitz. Actually, she was misdiagnosed as as, uh, benign Rolandic epilepsy because the spikes are in the Rolandic C3 uh, uh, area on the motor strip. Uh, But uh, uh, the clinical course was that she had normal development until three or four years old, and then she started having intractable epilepsy and lost her speech. So uh, it it fits the diagnosis of Drevitz much better than benign Rolandic epilepsy, but you know the <clears throat> diagnosis isn't uh, always uh, perfect when you end up with a, a, a foreign country here. So that uh, that uh, this case um, had a, a a master's degree therapist who worked with the family and. Um, And basically, uh, sent the data to me. And I told her that I thought that C3 SMR type training with suppression of the discharge itself would be beneficial, and uh, that she should try to end up helping to train the young girl's brain to be more efficient. And uh, she said, Well, uh, 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 you know, I I can't, I'm a master's degree therapist, I can't treat epilepsy. I said, well, you're not treating epilepsy, the neurologist who's treating her with medications treating epilepsy, you're just trying to optimize her brain function and you know, help her behaviorally. Um, and you're, you're training her uh, brain um, uh, operantly. Uh, and the, the doctor's doing the, the, the treatment of the epilepsy with the medications and uh, other procedures that they might do. Well, 20 training sessions later from October to January, Uh, She did an EEG as a follow-up part. uh, And I I told her it would probably be, you know, somewhere close to a hundred sessions and they send this in and there, there's still spikes in it and they're still frequent. But if you counted up all the spikes in the first one, there were 200 and something spikes and this has a hundred and something spikes. She asked me, is this progress? I said, well, it's gone from God awful to terrible, but I, you know, this you know it's moving in the right direction. keep doing the training. So uh, she kept doing the training and um, at 42 training sessions in May. So from October in the fall to May in the spring, um, 42 training sessions spread across a, a significant period of time. but 42 training sessions later, Uh, And Drevitz, the expectation is basically that you're not going to recover. It's it's a lifelong uh, degenerative uh, epilepsy. Well, first of all, the little sharp things at the back of the head are lambda. So that's not epilepsy. It's a different kind of waveform. But look at the EEG. Now, the therapist who did the recording, started the recording, looked at it, didn't see the C3 common spikes that went all the way through it. And she held her breath. She took a breath and held it thinking if she just breathed, the the spell would be broken. You know, the, the eye movements and, and uh, Lambda, the, the, there's no damn spikes. The EG is clear. And, we we don't expect it to happen like this in 42 training sessions, but in this case it did. Now I asked her, "Well, what the little girl doing?" And she said, "Well, she's speaking fluently, and she's riding a bicycle." Um, so from going from a, a basket case, basically unable to tie her shoes and and mute uh, at uh, uh, at eight years old. Uh, suddenly, um, from the fall to the spring, uh, she's uh, bloomed into a young girl who's uh, functioning reasonably well. Now, they did IQ testing and said she was a little bit slow. Uh, I told them, "Well, redo your IQ testing in another year, because you just woke her up." I mean, she was having you know 500 microvolt spike discharges flying by bashing against the shore of her cognition and, and totally destroying any ability to be functional. So she didn't really learn anything uh, from her experience from age four to age eight, and you just woke her up. Uh, give her a year of time to populate this brain with some experience and then redo the testing, and uh, you, I think you'll find a, a significant Uh, bloom uh, and how she performs as well. But just stopping an intractable seizure where you're having hundreds of seizures a day is is a a, a dramatic change for the family. Instead of having a a young girl who's uh, seizing consistently all day long on and off all day long, you've got somebody who's uh, awake, alert, interactive, uh, can, you you know, discuss things with you. So, uh, dramatic improvement, um, and skip again, yeah.
2: Jay, what well, what was the training? I'm just curious. Obviously, it's not a one size fits all. Here's your epilepsy training protocol. But what was the training? Do you know?
1: Well, um, there's this guy named Barry Sturman, um, uh, M.B. Sturman, professor at UCLA, and um, uh, he, he's uh, he's the one who discovered pretty much by accident uh, that uh, uh, SMR training could stop seizures. You know, um, life is like that. Once in a while, we're stumbling along through life and, and it hits us with an experience. And we, we didn't intend to learn something about it, but it teaches us a lesson about reality. And, you know, Barry was working with CATS. Um, at UCLA is a, a a young professor and, um, uh, he had trained the cats operantly, uh, with, uh, implanted electrodes in the head to press a lever, uh, to, uh, uh, to get reinforcement for a specific brain frequency. And, you know, uh, they, they learned, I mean, the the cats uh, wanted to get fed and they would press the bar to get, um, uh, broth and milk mixed, and uh, uh, so they, you know, they they got good at pressing the bar. Well, uh, NASA hired him to try and figure out what was going on with the uh, rocket fuel when they had a, a spill of rocket fuel. The janitors that were cleaning it up were having seizures, and um, and uh, you know they they had one person in outer space who was starting to see little green men outside the capsule and. Uh, so they thought that was probably some rocket fuel leaking in or something causing some you know, problems mentally, and so they they, they you know they hire uh, people to study the impact of the rocket fuel. And they they were establishing a dose response curve, and you know the, the they started out uh, you know they would pant and and uh, defecate and then finally finally convulse and eventually uh, the, the cats would die. Well, and you're establishing this nice dose-response curve. Well, the cats that he had already trained the SMR rhythm didn't that they they stayed at the baseline and and went past where the other cats were convulsing, and eventually they reached a toxic dose and would 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 die. But um, you you realize, geez, the cats that I trained this in didn't have seizures. Well, he had a a friend who was an epileptic and he said, well, if you can teach the cats how to not have a seizure, uh, try it on me. And the, the, you know, the, uh, the burgeoning application of, uh, sensory motor rhythm, SMR frequency training to stop epilepsy was born, uh, from Barry Sturman's work, um, with NASA. Uh, so th- th- this goes through the history of it. Um, you know, th- th- uh, implant and electrode studies and uh, the exact circuitry for what creates the SMR rhythm uh, and all of that. His, his paper in 2000 was um, a, a wonderful review of uh, the small, I mean, again, what's a big study? Like eight subjects and yeah, eight subjects is not enough to do much of anything, but it was an ABA design where they actually trained them to get better. They reversed the contingency, they got worse. They then switched the contingency back and they got better again. So uh, um, it was a very powerful uh, demonstration, but they don't let you do ABA designs with humans anymore. Uh, you can't deliberately uh, set up the contingency so that they get worse. So, and I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, but the, uh, uh, back then, ABA designs uh, back in the 70s uh, were, were not uncommon. Uh, the uh, human uh, institutional review boards didn't really uh, have any impact in the early 70s. When I had my lab, there was no IRB. Uh, they, we, we got to do what we wanted to do with the psychiatric patients at the state hospital, basically. So um, anyway, what we see is uh, a positive outcomes uh, 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 identified from uh, Barry Sturman's uh, work um, but uh, you have to realize that um, uh, SMR is not the only kind of training there's also slow cortical potential training so SMR has been shown to have efficacy uh, published studies uh, good outcomes um, but there's, there's also uh, infraslow or infralow frequency uh, which can be uh, done And let me minimize this so I can get a little bit more of it on screen. Uh, What you see is a three per second spike in wave on absence epilepsy. Uh, The onset is the little mark at the bottom. And this is the three per second spike in wave. And then they recover a little slow at the end during the recovery. Um, They compress time. This is one second between the dark lines. This is not one second between the dark lines. And this approximately six second Uh, burst here is this compressed six second burst with the recovery period afterwards, a little mark as to where they saw it start. Now they filtered this for the higher frequencies. If you filter out the high frequencies and just look at the low frequencies, this is where they saw it start. Well, you can see this drifting electronegative is up in EEG land. Uh, This drifting electronegative happened actually before they observed the seizure discharge starting. And the channels that went electronegative or up ended up being the channels that have the large discharges, the channels that have very little discharge on them, stay level or some slightly dip even. And to turn off the seizure discharge six seconds later, Everything goes electronegative, excuse me, electropositive down. And in EEG, electronegative turns things on, electropositive turns things off. And in Europe, they simply started the feedback control over this infra-low frequency or infraslow. slow It was called slow cortical potentials. Uh, and again, it's this, it's a level, it's not really a repeating wave you know, like an ongoing wave in a wavetable, this is, it's a level being turned up and down. And when it goes up, electronegative, things are activated. When it goes down, electropositive, things are inhibited or turned off. So uh, they trained this and they had like a pong game. Remember the old, you know, pong is a a, a paddle that can move up and down and a ball that would bounce back and forth. And so uh, the, they had kind of a Pong-like thing. It was a rocket ship, a little square with a point on the end of it, you know, and it would it would have a, a predetermined trajectory. It would slowly come across the screen and you had to move the paddle up and down in order to let it through a little window. And when you got good at moving it up and down, you were controlling the system. And uh, um, at the end of the training, they would tell you, well, down for you, electropositive, is something that will turn off your seizures. So if you feel a seizure starting, go electropositive and turn it off. And it was very, very effective. Uh, uh, Niels Burbaumer's lab, uh, and when he retired, it became Uta Strahl's lab and now she's retired. But they've been doing this uh, uh, since the the 1960s and uh, were in full stride in the 1970s training uh, slow cortical potentials in epilepsy. And it's an academic uh, university in Germany. That's where circadian rhythms were discovered. Um, It's, you know, it's a major uh, institution internationally, and uh, they were training the infra-slow, infra-low-frequency, slow-cortical potential approach, uh, teaching people to go electropositive to turn off seizures. Barry Sturman was training sensory motor rhythm. Now, it turns out that both... um, Uh, uh, both have high levels of efficacy. This uses glia uh, to turn on and off neural networks. And the other one uses a stabilizing rhythm, uh, the SMR rhythm uh, to stabilize the networks. And they both have good efficacy. So um, it's, it's a, uh, um, you know, there's a few ways to approach it with neurofeedback. The European approach was the, the slow critical potential training, for epilepsy, now there are people training uh, very slow content. infralow is uh, uh below a half a hertz or below a hertz, and you can see this this wave takes uh six to ten seconds to occur and and as such it's uh, you know very very slow uh, uh you know, a point 0.1 uh, hertz rhythm uh there there are people training uh slow frequencies at this point for other applications. Um, and uh, they've been studied. Now Dirk de Ritter, uh, the uh, ne- uh, academic neurosurgery uh, inst- uh, um, professor in New Zealand, um, ends up having done studies uh, showing that um, the, the uh, in in his opinion, the slow cortical potential or infra slow infra low frequency training uh, actually trains the rich club hub. That uh, turns on and off the rest of the oscillatory EEG. So uh, th- this is a foundational system as well. Anyway, um, yeah, we, we've eaten up quite a bit of the uh, uh, time talking about uh, epilepsy and uh, 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 a little, uh, a little bit about uh, it. There's, uh, uh, there's actually um, a family. Uh, um, that kind of accidentally bumped into neurofeedback. feedback. And uh, we worked with their daughter and uh, she's been seizure free and medication free for over four years now. Uh, And uh, uh, she started having seizures um, at age one, uh, ended up having a shunt placed, uh, but had intractable epilepsy for years and years. Um, And uh, anyway, there's, this is about a five minute video, uh, about Maggie, uh, that was professionally done. Uh, so let's,
4: Maggie and I am eight years old. At about a year old, she started having grand mal seizures. We were told it was epilepsy. She would have, on average, two grand mal seizures a week. Ninety percent of her sleep time, she was in a seizure. I would wake up a lot during the night. I didn't know when it was coming or not. Some would last 20 seconds, someone last five minutes.
3: It's not if it'll happen, it was, well, when is it going to happen?
4: She had one, one time it was five minutes long.
3: I had her right in my arms and she started turning blue. That, that was really, really hard.
4: One day, our good friend Brian, I must have had a very defeated look on my face or something in line.
5: So I asked her, I said, you know, hey Kim, what, what's going on? You, you just looked it was sad, like something happened. You
4: no, know Maggie had a bad seizure. and
5: Seizing? Do you know what I do for a living? And she said, no. I said, well, I happen to work in the field of neuroscience. And if you get a copy of the EEG, I'd be happy to share it with one of my great friends. And if there's anything that we can do, we'll try to help.
4: Just listening to him, he sounded absolutely insane. You know, really, you're going to help my daughter. You're going to hook her up to these wires, and she's going to be cured. Okay.
1: The subjective experience sometimes is simply unconsciousness. Like there was just a snip of time missing, and you ask him what happened?
4: I didn't really remember it. Like, kind of, but not really.
1: The kind of epilepsy she has, which is a very unique kind. You fall asleep, your brain has a seizure, your body is still. You don't look like you're convulsing, but your brain is having a seizure. And it can kill you in your sleep.
3: What am I going to do for this young person that they haven't already gotten? Neurofeedback is a way of doing some operant training to the brain.
1: And the meta-analysis that was done by Gabriel Tan showed an 84% chance of a 50% or greater reduction in seizures following neurofeedback. And the doctor said, you know, I'm a specialist in this area. I've never heard of this. How can it be real? if I've never heard of it. He was an open-minded skeptic, which is all we needed. Well, if it
3: doesn't hurt, let's just give it a shot. So we started this treatment.
4: They provided the entire session's treatment out of the goodness of their hearts.
5: Eventually, what we started doing was shaping and conditioning the brain.
3: We went up to Linda, driving through the snowstorm. Uh, I met up with her. We got
1: Maggie's brain mapped.
4: I... The brain training,
3: I stopped having seizures. It's a behavioral training. It gives the body and the brain a message by the feedback. Do this, don't do that. You're just gonna do all the cool talents that you do to make that ball levitate. No hands, you can't use any hands though.
4: It was fun,
3: really fun.
5: So the family went up, spent a weekend with Linda. Linda showed them how to connect the electrodes and which locations they had to go on.
1: Who helped her? Maggie helped her. She did the work. Nobody did it but Maggie. We're really just optimizing her brain function. We're not treating epilepsy. The doctor's treating the epilepsy. We're just helping her learn how to operate her brain.
5: Every week, Linda would pop in and make, make a few adjustments on the training protocol. About three to four weeks into training, mom calls me just completely excited, practically crying. Um, turns out that Maggie slept through the night. It was the first time she had slept through the night in over two years.
4: I raced to her room and I walk in there and she's peacefully sleeping great. You know, from that moment, we just knew this was our journey. So once her treatment plan was over, approximately 70 sessions, she had a completely clean EEG. She goes on the monkey bars and hangs upside down, um, goes on bike rides, um, goes swimming, She's living a normal childhood now. It's exciting.
3: (laughs) Neural feedback has saved her life. It truly has.
1: you,
0: You meet somebody in line and ask them how they're doing, and their life changes.
1: Yeah, but basically she went from intractable epilepsy. Her, her, the, um, Brian Milstead is a salesperson in our field and he knows the family because their kids go to school together. And he didn't know Maggie, but the, her older brother and, and his kids kind of knew each other. So uh, he knew the mother and saw her kind of weepy uh, one day in the supermarket and asked her uh, what, what's wrong. And she said Maggie had had another uh, Abnormal EG and had a difficult night with seizures. And uh, she had ESES electrographic status epile- epileptics of sleep. And uh, uh, basically, uh, he said, Well, you, you don't even know what I do, do you? You know, we're, we're, we're parents, but we don't necessarily know uh, what everybody does. And uh, he, he works in a field that does neurofeedback and uh, helps people learn how to not have epilepsy by pr- playing a computer game with their brain. And she's thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, why, why hasn't my doctor talked about this? And uh, they, they actually asked the doctor whether a neurofeedback would be okay. And he's, yeah, well, I haven't really heard of it. And he's an epileptologist. She said, if I haven't heard of it, how can it really be real? So, um, you know, but he said, "Well, you know, if it's, uh, um, they're not doing anything other than uh, uh, having you play a computer game with your EEG, um, that, that probably can't hurt. Uh, go ahead, do it at your own risk." Uh, Brian gave them the equipment. Uh, he sent me the EEG. I came up with the treatment protocol. Uh, hooked him up with a therapist up in Michigan to help monitor the sessions. Uh, train them how to hook up everything and work it at home. And 72 training sessions later, she's seizure free. And uh, it took a, a year or so to get her off of all of her meds. The, the uh, neurologist, well, an epileptologist that was managing the case, they don't want you to be on meds. You know, if, if you have a clean EEG uh, with no discharges in it, uh, they'll titrate down the meds. If it stays clean, they'll take the rest of the meds away. So it took a while, she, had, she was on three anticonvulsants, which if you're intractable, they'll likely have you on three. Uh, they're not supposed to have more. Um, so it took a while, but uh, they, they withdrew her from all of her meds and her E. G. stayed clear. She's just a happy little girl now. So, um, you know, a five minutes uh, video of, of that. I think one of the last things, because we're uh, eating up the entire hour here, um, is is essentially um, the the response in psychiatry to medication. Uh, w- this paper uh, look, looks at uh, people that have failed medications, uh, and again, this this is a, a, a major journal, uh, e.g., uh, clinical, e.g., and neuroscience uh, journal. And um, th- this looks at uh, 386 patients that were medication failure patients in psychiatry. Uh, Dr. Tarno gets referrals from psychiatrists that have tried whatever they can and have failed. They send the case to him to figure out. And he got 386 of these medication failure patients. And uh, uh, Ron Swatsina uh, is the PhD in the office, and he basically um, de-identified a 1,000-something patients' data uh, entirely and got an IRB approval for researchers to access that data. And after he got all that you know, done, uh, he called me up all excited. He, the IRB gave us approval to do research on the data. What should we do? So uh, all that work to get it set up for somebody to access it, he didn't really have any specific study in mind. He just knew he had to set it up so it could be done. So I I told him, well, you know, your doc sees patients that are intractable uh, psych patients that medication has failed on look at their EEGs with cluster analysis and add another cluster until the clusters don't make any sense. And uh, he, you know, he started out with, you know, two clusters and both of them were, you know, reasonable EEG features, the third one, the fourth one, added the fifth cluster and it, it didn't really make any sense. But basically what they found is that the one EEG feature that's most common in the medication failure is epileptiform discharges. You know, it's a psych patient. You don't think of them as an epileptic because they're, they're not having seizures. But if they are having epileptiform discharges, it's highly likely that the antidepressant or uh, antipsychotic, which will make them worse, or the stimulants. I mean, these things, you don't give them to people that have epileptiform discharges unless you're treating the discharge, in which case you can you know, give an ADD with epilepsy a stimulant, but you've got to be treating the discharges. So, um, and uh, they, they, they basically found four patterns, epileptiform discharge being the number one. A diffuse encephalopathy, where the EEG is a low voltage, slow EEG, that's a toxic or metabolic problem. It's not just a psychiatric problem. Focal slowing, well, that, that's a focal problem in the brain. It's not a normal psychiatric uh, issue. And then beta spindles. And uh, beta spindles in the EEG are uh, um, easily kindled cortex. Occasionally, they're seen with epileptiform discharges, but they can be seen by themselves as well, and uh, th- they make normal function very difficult. Um, uh, beta spindles are easily kindled cortex. Um, if you have beta spindles, you're highly likely to be an insomniac, of world-class insomniac, not just have a little difficulty with sleep, but you, you probably are um, severely sleep dis- disturbed because of the beta spindles, easily kindled cortex. You, you don't fall asleep easy. You don't stay asleep easy. And uh, as such, disturbed sleep will mess you up pretty bad. If you ever tried being sleep deprived for a while, it doesn't really optimize function. I'll say that. Uh, the uh, This study basically found four EG features that predicted medication failure in psychiatry and epileptiform discharges being one of them. Uh, uh, given the fact that essentially 60% of the autism population have epileptiform discharges or paroxysms Um, and a a third approximately uh, of the ADD population, Um, a third of the psychiatric population. Um, You know, if you're dealing with somebody that doesn't respond to the first intervention, when you give them something in psychiatry, maybe you should actually examine the organ you're trying to treat uh, because whatever you guessed wasn't right. And if you actually look, you'll find the approximately a third to 60% of the population have these discharges that you really should know about. And you don't see them behaviorally. You only see them when you actually look at the EEG. So um, actually examining the organ that they're treating ends up giving them an insight that they wouldn't have from their behavioral diagnosis. You know, the DSM doesn't do very well identifying these invisible things uh, when behavioral uh, self-report is largely what they're based on.
3: These articles that Jay is sharing are kind of readily available on the internet, which is great. You can download the PDFs pretty easily without having to pay the publisher uh, a crazy fee. Uh, like all the other uh, fields do. So um, th- these articles are fabulous, and I, I think people can download them and, and take a look themselves.
1: Yeah, I don't just share uh, material when I do talks, I spam you with tons of material. So, um, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to share the little bits that I, I tossed out. Um, the, uh, it, it was only one little folder full. I've got a yeah, gigantic, yeah. gigantic. Treasure trove of articles here.
0: Okay, Jay, great, great job today. Great job. Bravo, bravo. Uh, we thank you all for listening to Neuronoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcasts. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, Interested Brain Hacker, and Sadia M. Visit outrageousbaking.com, gluten free everyone loves, and tortalk.se, tortalk, to discover how listening to text can increase the efficiency and reduce stress. If you have an idea for a topic, please email p@neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars in Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to to our YouTube channel. This would be a good one to see on YouTube, guys. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, 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 really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle, like Tor Talk and outrageous baking. We love our Patreon peeps. Cue the music.